Thank you for joining us for the Ravenswood Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Dustin Moore. We are a Bible-believing, grace-driven church located on the north side of Chicago. As a church, we are passionate about making disciples of all people for the glory of God. If you would like more information about our ministry, visit ravenswoodbaptist.org. Now, here's Pastor Dustin. Take your Bibles and... Go ahead and get those open to Mark chapter 6 this morning. Mark chapter number 6, as we continue to systematically work through Mark's gospel, uh, our job or our goal when we come to church is uh, not to be entertained. It's not to be uh, feeling you know, like you had an emotional fix of any kind with, the, with what happens with music. There's a place for all that. We do want to be a people that, according to John chapter 4, worship the Lord in spirit which is our emotions, and in truth. Uh, the goal, though, is to be fixed on the truth. It is to be tethered, anchored to truth, and to have a truth that is strong enough, strong enough to get us through the most difficult days of our life. Uh, in our church alone, over the last two, three months, incredible difficulties, heartbreaks, pains, and I, my job as a pastor is to give you an anchoring to something that's objective outside of you that you can hold on to in the winds of life and the storms of life and the good, the mountaintops of life. Give you something to grab a hold of. That's, that's my job. And that's my, my, my aim and my prayer. And so when we get to Mark chapter 6, to be honest with you, I say that because a uh, couple things. First off, when we come to church, we want to lock in, all right? Try to do your best to lock in with me and uh, move with me through this, the text. Bring a Bible, bring a pen, bring something to work with me uh, through this. Secondly, uh, oftentimes I'll, I'll preach a message and I, man, I, I, am, uh, I am so passionate about the text. I got to be honest with you though. I love the Bible. I'm thankful for the Bible. I believe we have an every word Bible. I believe you can trust every word. The truth is today, I don't know why we have in front of us today what we have in front of us. When I say that, I mean the text that we have, the story we have. I'm going to ask you that many times today. Why did God give us this story? I, I can't figure it out. It doesn't talk much about Christ. It tells us nothing about His ministry. It tells us nothing about the disciples. It's just this story interjected into the text. And so we're going to Ask, why did God tell us about the beheading of John the Baptist? Why? What's, what is this? What is my takeaway from this? Because all through the Gospel of Mark, we have been asking the question, who is this man? Who is Jesus? Who is he? We come to the text today and we can ask, who is this man? But we've got to peel some layers back to try to answer that. And so I want you to, with me today, try to ask that question. I've been asking it all week. And I'm standing here today saying, I'm going to offer an answer. I'm going to try to offer some answers. Um, but I know the Lord has something for us, so let's dig in here for a moment. Have you ever had a job that you felt like people at that job hated you? I appreciate a couple honest people. Thank you. Um, that you didn't have to answer me out loud. Uh, it was. Uh, the truth is, there's I can't I can't think of a job uh, off the top of my head in the days of Scripture 
where people were hated as much as, as the prophets were. Um, not only do the people hate you, but those in power often want you dead. Tough job to be a prophet, right? Such is the case that's in front of us today. Mark gives us here, in Mark 6, he gives us one of those sandwiches that I told you about. We call it a Markin sandwich, where Mark starts something, and then he deters from what he was telling us and gives us a piece here, and then he's going to come back to the original story in a moment. But today what we have is this Markin sandwich. We have the interjection of the story about John the Baptist. Last week, we saw Jesus sending the 12 out on a short-term mission. Next week, we'll see that they report back from their mission. This short-term mission, though, is left for a few moments this morning. I'm curious if you recall some of the features of that short-term mission from last week. The disciples, the 12, were representatives of Jesus to the places that they went. The disciples were extension and extension of Jesus' ministry. Jesus gave them the power of the Spirit to preach and perform, bring signs and wonders. They were sent out two by two. They're to travel with little, trusting the Lord with everything and, and trusting the Lord very much in their journey. They were to accept any hospitality that came their way. If somebody, a town, rejected the, the, the group, the, the, the pair of two, they were to shake the dust off their clothes when they were rejected, signaling the judgment that would come on that village at the last day. And so Mark's narrative, with which I want you to understand, is not chronologically, um, it's not a chronological order here of the life of Jesus. But we get, Mark gives us a pause in the story about the disciples being sent out but he does pick up in this moment telling us about the fame of Jesus. He tells us about the fame of Jesus, that there was a man, a man named King Herod, and King Herod had heard of Jesus. Jesus had become, if you will, that famous, that King Herod had heard of him. Now, for, the, for any of you that grew up in church like I did, you've heard the name King Herod, right? Herod is not a king like we understand a king in England today. Herod's not a king like that. Um, but the question that you got to ask when you see the name Herod is which of the six are we talking about here? There are six biblical Herods. I don't want to overwhelm you with this, but, but I want you to try to grasp the, there's a, from the birth of Jesus and through the life of Jesus, all right? From the birth through the life of Jesus, we have at least four Herods. So you might know the name Herod the Great. Herod the Great uh, is the one that is most often thought about. But Herod the Great, um, is not who you see in the life of Jesus most often, but the three sons, three of his sons, is who we find during the life of Jesus. This Herod, even Herod the Great, they, these guys were regional monarchs. They were not Jews. They were descendants of Esau. 
Herod the Great, though, the one that's most well-known, ruled the region of Palestine underneath Rome, underneath Caesar, for 36 years. To this day, if you go to Israel, you find the effects of Herod the Great, the works of Herod the Great all throughout the country of Israel. One of the chief um, developments led by Herod the Great is what we now call Temple Mount. That the expansion of Temple Mount, the building up of walls, the, 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 the increasing of the size of the Temple Mount was all accomplished under Herod the Great. The people of Israel had a mixed feeling about him. There's a an appreciation for some of the things like Temple Mount, but they despised his rule because he was a Gentile puppet for Rome, oppressing the Jews. On top of that, Herod the Great was a, he was an awful man, deeply immoral and brutal. He was the one when the wise men came and told them, told him about this baby that was going to be born. He was the one who wanted to kill all the Jews, all the the male babies in Bethlehem after the birth of Christ. That was Herod the Great. Herod the Great died shortly after the birth of Christ, though. And, by the way, interesting about Herod the Great, even had two of his sons murdered. He's a terrible, terrible man. But the text that we have today is not Herod the Great. It's one of his three sons, a man named Herod Antipas. I think in your note sheet there, you have the question, Herod the Great, he is before the birth of Christ, he is during the birth of Christ, but Herod Antipas is the majority of the life of Christ. Along with his brothers, Herod Antipas uh, did not have the same power, he did not have the same prestige as his father, but he definitely shared in the immorality and the brutality of his father. Now keep in mind, these guys were not absolute monarchs. They answered to Rome. They they ruled as vassals of Rome. Their influence, power, and authority was limited to the areas they governed for Rome. In fact, Herod the Great's ruling area was so large that his three sons split it into three different regional uh, oversight after his death. But for the, for the text today, the Herod that we have is a man named Herod Antipas. He is the antagonist here. He's the bad guy here. And Mark seems fit to place this story right in the middle of telling us about the ministry, the short-term ministry of the twelve. So I want to invite you to observe today the the story that's told. I want you to look for the moral point of the text, okay? Look, think about, as I'm going through this, the moral point of the text. And then at the end of this, we're going to work to do a comparison and application here. So the first thing I want you to see, and we're going to read through this as we work through it, is first off, I want you to see Herod's intrigue with Jesus. Herod's intrigue with Jesus. Look at verse 14. And Herod heard of him, for his name was spread about. Now pause there for a moment. Jesus' ministry is spreading. The disciples are doing a great job. The word is spreading by mouth about all that Christ has done in the region of Galilee. 
gets all the way to Herod Antipas. Now, there's something really awesome about that parentheses in the text. It might actually be my favorite part of this story and this, this, this aspect is for his name, for Jesus' name was spread abroad. However it was happening, by whatever means it was happening, the point of Jesus' ministry and the point of the disciples' preaching and healings were to make Christ known. Were to make Christ known. Let me just say this. That is still the point of what we do here. In this passage, you're told that the name of Jesus was spreading so much that it made it all the way to King Herod. To make the name of Jesus known, we preach the gospel, we bring the message of the gospel with, with Christian works and Christian love, and the ultimate goal of Christian ministry is to make Jesus known, to make Jesus famous, if you will. It's a really good thing, isn't it, when unbelievers hear about Jesus? We we sit here today and we ask the question, why does God want us to see the story? Maybe one of the first reasons is to be motivated to take the name of Jesus to the nations. That every king and every leader and every person does not die without hearing of Jesus. That's a good point of this text. It should motivate us to go out this week to take some invitations that are out there on the rack. They're not there for decoration. They're there for us to take them out with us to make Jesus famous. But Herod asked a question. If Jesus was someone else, he goes on to ask if Jesus is a reincarnated version of someone else. The two names that are brought up before him are John the Baptist, risen from the dead, and another and others around him thought maybe it was Elias, maybe it was Elijah. Maybe another of the prophets. And you see that in verse 14, in verse 15. And he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Others said that it is Elias, and others said that it is a prophet or as one of the prophets. And so there's this conversation going on around Herod. Who is this guy? And he says, I think it's John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Those around him are like, well, maybe it's Elijah, one of the prophets. And so we find those people, and by the way, those that are saying that are wondering about Elijah or one of the prophets are hearkening back to the the prophecy in Malachi 4 that you have there in your text about the promise of the Elijah the prophet or the one who's going to come to, uh, to prepare the way of the Lord. And Herod, Herod's not buying this. In fact, Luke tells us in his narrative on this that Herod has a pretty serious intrigue in Jesus. Luke 9 and Luke's telling of this says, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, And he was perplexed. He was perplexed. Because that it was said of some that John was risen from the dead. There were some people that were telling Herod, hey, listen, John was dead, but he's arisen. And Herod said, 
John have I beheaded. But who is this? And he desired to see him. And so Herod has heard about Jesus. He's wondering who he is. He's thinking he's John the Baptist. And after that moment, verse 16, Herod made a determination that it had to be John. He said, when Herod heard thereof, he said, it is John whom I beheaded. He's risen from the dead. Now here's something that, as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, and I told you this is not a chronological telling of the life of Christ, but, but we've not yet heard in Mark's Gospel about this moment. Some event has taken place with John the Baptist that Matthew and Luke both wrote about, but Mark until this time hasn't said anything about it. It's sandwiched between this disciple short mission trip going out and starting and the disciples coming back. So here we are beginning to learn that something has happened past tense with John the Baptist. Now who was John? Who is this guy? He's called John the Baptist not because he led or pastored a Baptist church, but because John's ministry was one of baptizing. You might consider him as John the Baptizer. John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He came as a fulfillment of the prophecy of an Elijah-like fore, Elijah forerunner who would announce the Messiah. In, in Luke 1, the angel of the Lord told Zacharias, John's father, what John's ministry would be. You have it there in Luke 1, 15, all the way through 17. You can read more of that in Luke 1. But John's ministry would be one of announcement and preparation. John's whole ministry, if you could summarize it simplistically, was to announce, announce and point to the Messiah. We find that in John 1. When the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. John's ministry was one of pointing to the Messiah. He even recognized this. That his ministry was one where he had a, he had a moment that he was put on this earth to, to accomplish a purpose, but his job was not to draw people away from Jesus. And in John 3.30, he said those famous words. He, speaking of Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. His purpose was to point to and prepare for the Messiah. That preparation involved preaching a baptism of repentance, calling out the sins and the idolatry and the, the, um, the, the depravity of the Jewish people. And so that's what John's purpose was. But we haven't heard of John from Mark's gospel until Mark 1, the very beginning of Mark 1. When Mark told us that John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sin, this preparatory action for the Jewish people that John preached and acted on was to ready them for the coming gospel of Christ, the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus would preach and offer. And we find John active in ministry actually in John the Beloved, John the Apostles, gospel account. In John 3, we find John the Baptist baptizing. We saw in Mark 1, Jesus get baptized. But in John 3, John is baptizing in Anon near Salim. 
because there was much water there. The water was significant enough where John could immerse them, which is biblical baptism by immersion. And the people, the Jewish people, came out to John and were baptized. Verse 24 says something there in John 3 that we don't know what to do with yet. For John was not yet cast into prison. So let me just kind of, you got a lot of moving parts here. Let me kind of narrow us for a moment. As a faithful prophet, part of John's preaching, his baptizing, his pointing to the Messiah, part of John's ministry was to preach the Word. The Old Testament Scriptures as had been given. To point to sin and to point the Jewish people to the sinfulness in their own heart and the sinfulness around them and to announce Christ the Messiah had come. And that's what John's doing. But John drops in a little nugget there for us that Mark doesn't tell us necessarily that John had a something happened where John was put into prison. So now we're going to get a little bit of that in Mark's gospel. Stay with me. Look at number two, the second part of that. So we know that, G, that Herod is intrigued with Jesus and thinks he's John the Baptist who's been risen from the dead. So let's consider Herod's relationship with John the Baptist. And we see here in the story Herod's fear of John, his fear of John. Now, it's not abnormal in Scripture for powerful people, kings and queens and rulers and their wives to try to silence the voice of the prophet. You've read the Old Testament, you've seen it over and over again, right? I want to silence the voice of the prophet. Look at verse 17 with me. For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake. Now try to stay with the text here. His brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. For John had said unto Herod, it is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him, speaking of John, and would have killed him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and holy, and observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. I want you to notice, one, there's a lot of drama in what you just read. But notice that King Herod, this vassal regional monarch for Rome, is afraid of a prophet. He fears John. This isn't fear in a reverential respect way. The word for fear is running away terrified. <laughs> He's terrified of this Old Testament prophet. The evil and wicked Herod Antipas was afraid because he saw that John was just and holy. He had watched him and heard him. He even enjoyed hearing him. But that caused him to be afraid of John. And the problem is Herod, Herod had a lot of problems. Herod had a lot of problems. I mean this respectfully, as respectfully as I can. I don't want to be silly with this. But probably Herod's greatest problem in this moment of life was his wife. It was his wife. And the problem is brought on by Herod. Now stay with me. Let me tell you a, a story here that is kind of a biblical soap opera for a moment, all right? Herod Antipas 
had a couple of brothers. Remember I told you that his father, Herod the Great, had killed two brothers? Well, Herod Antipas still had a couple living brothers. One of his brothers, Philip, often referred to historically as Herod Philip, was at this time living in Rome. Philip had a wife named Herodias. Herod Antipas was married. He had a, a, a wife. Her name was Phasaelus. Well, Herod Antipas one day traveled to Rome. He's going in to meet with the Roman rulers, and there he spends time with his brother, and he, he and his sister-in-law decide that they want to be together. So Herod Antipas wants Herodias to be his wife, and Herodias wants her brother-in-law to be her husband. But the story gets more odd. Herodias was the daughter of Antipas's older brother who had been murdered. So Herod the Great had two of his sons killed. One of them was, Herod, was Herodias's father. And so Herodias is not just the wife of Philip and soon to be the wife of Herod Antipas, but Herodias is also their niece. I can't tell if you all are grossed out yet. The great Herod the Great then espoused his granddaughter after murdering her father. Herod the Great espoused Herodias to marry her uncle, soon to be husband, Philip. Philip and Herodias had been engaged to be married when Philip was 20 and Herodias was 8. Later on, Philip and Herodias get married. Herod Antipas, as I mentioned, comes and visits Rome. He and, he and Herodias fall in love and decide they're going to divorce their spouses. And so Herodias then marries her other uncle, soon-to-be husband, and Antipas divorces his wife, Phasaelus. Herodias leaves Rome, and he, she brings with her and Herod Antipas uh, her teenage daughter, Salome, and they move into Herod Antipas's castle in Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee. And somewhere in all of this, John the Baptist preached about this unlawful divorce and remarriage. And it angered Herodias so much that she wanted to kill John. But the text said she couldn't. So she compels her husband to imprison, to imprison John the Baptist. Matthew 14.3 says, For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. The biblical authors are good to tell us that she really belongs to another man at that point. So I want you to see thirdly, I want you to see Herod's murder of John. I'm going to read the text, and I'm just going to say a quick remark about it. The story tells itself. All right, track with me here and look at verse 21. And when a convenient day was come that Herod on his birthday made a supper for his lords. I want you to see, by the way, I want you to see, I'll tread carefully here. I want you to see the immorality of these people. He made a supper for his lords, high captains, and chief estates of Galilee. And when the daughter of the said Herodias came in and danced and pleased Herod and them that sat with him, this is a, this is a sick, sick people. 
And the king said unto the damsel, Ask of me whatsoever thou wilt, and I will give it to thee. And he sware unto her, Whatsoever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it to thee unto the half of my kingdom. There's a sense in this text as you're reading of, of, a, of a, um, a drunkenness, of a, of a subjecting of a teenage daughter immorally, sexually to these men. Verse 24, And she went forth and said unto her mother, What shall I ask? And she, Herodias, said the head of John the Baptist. And she came in straightway with haste unto the king and asked, saying, I will, I will that thou give me by and by in a charger the head of John the Baptist. And the king was exceeding sorry. For his, yet for his oath's sake and for the sakes which sat with them, he would not reject her. He had to do this now. His reputation was on the line. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head in the charger and gave it to the damsel. And the damsel gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they looked, they came and took up his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Here we see the tragic end of the whole story. A wicked king and his pals lustfully fixed their eyes on a teenage girl, his stepdaughter, his niece, second niece, whatever you want to call her. This is, a, this is a, an incredible amount of debauchery consumed with her physically, that they're willing to make an oath like this. Salome goes to her mom, asking what should be said, what she should say to her stepfather. And there you see, she requests the charger. John the Baptist had to be put on it. The charger, the head on the charger is a sign in the room that the execution happened as Herod said it would happen. Just to say it again, just a grieving, gross story. So why do we have it? Why do we have it? I, I want to encourage you to ask that question. I I'll offer you a couple, a couple possible applications in this. There is no mention of Christ or His disciples. So what do we do here? Well, let's first, let's, let's look at the, I think, what we can call the moral observation of this. And that's first given there in your handout, number one. John the Baptist is a powerful example to every Christian that no matter the pressure we face, we must remain committed to God's truth. We've, we've highlighted this, haven't we, for the last couple of weeks. I want you to think with me for a moment. I want you to think with me, and I want you to ask Ask yourself about this. Ask whether you see the commitment of John the Baptist to God's truth in the face of persecution. You, you and I know, because we know the story, what's happening. John's commitment to truth was greater than his commitment to his life. That's a tough ask, isn't it? But as we've looked at chapter 6 and we've seen the rejection of Jesus in Nazareth, we've seen the ministry of the disciples getting sent out and they're told you're going to preach in the cities and some people are going to reject you. You shake the dust off your, off your garments. 
signaling the, 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 the judgment that's going to come on that town. And now, right in the middle of that, we're dropped the story of the greatest prophet, the greatest born of women, Jesus says, is John the Baptist. And we're told how John the Baptist, when he had a moment to, to save his life, didn't back down from saying what was true. There's got to be something here for us as it pertains to the truth and persecution. The truth and rejection. The truth and the ultimate cost. Now, for I'm 41. I've been in church for 41 years, and I feel like pastors have stood before me for as long as I can consciously remember and said, the day's going to come when you... You're going, to have, you're going to have to make a decision about the commitment to the truth or your own well-being. And I have to, after hearing that all my life, I have to say to us, are we more committed to the, to the truth than we are our comfortability, our life? Are we preparing our kids to have a John the Baptist moment when they're in their 40s and when they're in their 50s? Are we that committed to God's truth? That when the, when the, when we have to stand before the Herods of our day and say, this is wrong, will we do it? Will we do it? I, I'm just to be honest with you. I, I don't know why else we have the story other than to face the music this morning and to ask ourselves the question, is there anything in this world that has our allegiance more than God's truth? Anything. Are we willing to say, Lord, no matter what comes, like Luther, like Luther at the Council of Dort, as, as, as other great men stood in the, in, the, in the Colosseums and said, I will die, but I will not recant the truth. I want, I just want to, I have to say to us as a church, my friends, as somebody said to me on the phone this week, I can't see anything in this world getting better. And I can't, I'm not sure how anybody can see that. The return of Christ, we, we believe is imminent. The question for us is, are we ready to be faithful? Are we ready? I told you last week, comfortability is not our goal. Obedience and faithfulness to God's truth is our goal. John the Baptist is a powerful example to us that we must, we must remain committed to truth. How tightly, ask yourself this morning, how tightly or how loosely do I hold God's truth? Am I willing to take what might come my way when I am faced to stand on Scripture? Let me present to you another, another possible observation here about this story. We see John the Baptist. But Mark, Mark has, I want you to think with me for a moment, okay? If I've lost you somewhere, come back for a moment. Mark, for the last six chapters, has been revealing something to us about our King, about Jesus. We've asked this question over and over again, right? What or who is this man? To use the exact words from the, the disciples, what manner of man is this? 
Well, the other person in the story here has to force us to do something. If we've seen and begun to see what King Jesus is like, then we also need to look at Herod and we need to see how Herod is so unlike King Jesus. All right? So the second observation there is in a book that shows us the announcement of the king and his kingdom. Herod is a visual example that the kings of this world are nothing like King Jesus. Mark has shown us now for six chapters the kingship of Christ. He's begun his kingdom in preaching the gospel, doing mighty and powerful acts of healing and deliverance, deliverance among the people. He, Mark has shown us the compassion of Jesus on hurting people, those that have been pushed out, those that don't measure up to the legalistic teaching of the Pharisees, even those who, because of the ceremonial laws of Judaism, have no access to people, family, or even the synagogue. Mark's been showing us the kind of king that Jesus is, who doesn't push any away, but invites all in. He's the kind of king that puts the needs of others in front of him. And as we've been studying the Gospel of Mark, my prayer has been that you've begun to see what Jesus is like and ask the question, what manner of man is Jesus? And so for a moment this morning, in conclusion, I want you to see Herod. You need to see this man, Herod, like his father, consumed by power, consumed by greed, consumed by lust. One of the most evil Gentile ruling rulers ever to rule over Israel. And in this text, Mark is not just giving us a historical account of a great prophet. He's giving us a comparison of two kings and two kingdoms. He's, he's forcing us, the modern reader, to look at King Jesus and his kingdom and the other kings and the other kingdoms of this world, so to speak. And the picture here is a picture of Jesus and Herod and Jesus and the Herods of this world. I mean, Herod marries his niece, steals her from his brother, divorces his wife, objectifies his, his stepdaughter before himself and a bunch of men. It's almost like the book of Esther all over again. And Jesus, Mark is showing us this type of man, who he is, and he's showing us what should and is often expected from the rulers and leaders of this world. And it's sad. It's sad. It's sad that we have come to the place where we have to constantly show Christians the comparison between Jesus, your king, and all the other propped up Herods around us. And the truth is, many Christians are more enamored with the Herods of this world than they are with King Jesus. And if you have to wonder if that's you, consider how much time this week you gave to King Jesus and all the other Herods of this world and this country. Mark's been trying to get us to ask, who is this man? For 45, 50 minutes every Sunday, I've been trying to get our church it is my responsibility to get us to ask, who is this man? But 
meanwhile, Christians are, are so consumed with the Herods of this world. Now let me say to you an important reminder. This world is not your home, Christian. This world is not your home. I've taken one moment already this, 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 this morning and I've asked you to let me to be a pastor, so again, I'm asking you to let me to be a pastor for a moment. I understand today we live in an already but not yet. I understand that we have mayors and governors and presidents. And yes, Christians should engage in the political affairs of this country, this world, but every Christian, I'm asking our church, every Christian needs to take a step back and take an honest, introspective look into how consumed you might have come, become with politics and politicians. Herod is not your king. Herod is not your king. He is nothing like your king. He's nothing like your king. But we consume and consume and consume and consume. The stats given recently is the average churchgoer is, is, re, is listening to over, to over 200 hours a month of political content and dismissing the teaching that they get in their church on Sundays. Herod is not your king. He may be your candidate, but he's not your king. He's not your redeemer. He's not your true hope. Him winning the election or re-election is not your greatest hope. King Jesus is, friend. King Jesus is. And I want to caution us from being so invested emotionally, physically, that we, we are dividing with friends and family and loved ones and brothers and sisters in Christ over politics. Over politics. After church, we're talking more about politics than we are Jesus. You're texting me about politics more than you are about Scripture. Herod is not your king. And hear me very carefully. About as blunt as you're going to get Dustin Moore. If you're offended right now, you're proving my point. You're proving my point. Herod is not your king. And I've got pastor friends who are like, I want to be out of pastoring before 2024 because it's going to get ugly. And not for any mature Christian, it doesn't have to be ugly because Herod is not your king. This world is not your home. No candidate is saving this country, friend. Somebody said to me recently, I like coming to your church because you guys don't talk about politics. Let me say to you the most political statement I'll make, and that is this. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And the way that you know that we know that we are too invested in Herod is when we can't handle someone telling us how immoral Herod is. And you know what politics has done to the church? When someone tells you how wicked your favorite politician is or how unbiblical a policy is, we become like Herodias 
and we want to chop off the head of the person who called us out. And the division and the frustration of politics begins to bleed into the church. And your rallying point is a political rallying point, and it's not the resurrection of Jesus. I understand. You'll, you'll hear me. You'll dismiss me. You'll be frustrated with me. You'll separate from me and other Christians. And you're free to do that. You're free to do that. But when you do that, your politics have become your God. Your politics have become your God. My encouragement to our church, you know the politics. You know the, you don't have to go very far to see election season ramping up. I, I want to encourage you over the next couple of years, whatever this looks like, be more consumed with King Jesus than with, than with King Herod. Be more consumed with King Jesus than you are with King Herod. Because King Herod is nothing like King Jesus. Herod would fit in great in American politics, wouldn't he? He takes the life of those that disagree with him. Herod takes, and Herod takes, and Herod takes. That's all Herod does. You know what Jesus does? Jesus gives, and Jesus gives, and Jesus gives, and Jesus loves, and Jesus is compassionate, and Jesus serves, and Jesus preaches the gospel, and Jesus calls men and women to him. Herod is consumed with Herod. You say, well, that's where we are today. You're exactly right. That's where we are today. And we need to take one look at Herod and ten looks at Jesus. Jesus doesn't take the life of his enemies. Jesus gives his life for his enemies. That's what Jesus does. I want to ask you this morning, can you find me a king like that? Find me a ruler like that today. You can't. And so I'll say again, your king is King Jesus. At the end of the story here, we found something interesting, didn't we? Sad, grieving. Now that we find King Herod sorry, and by the way, he is sorry. <laughs> He's a sorry excuse for a king. But you know what else we find? We find the disciples of John the Baptist taking his body. His, be, his beheaded body and putting it in a tomb. It's not the last time we'll find someone going into a tomb after they've been killed, is it? But Jesus is even better than John the Baptist because Jesus doesn't stay in his tomb. He rises again three days later. Herod thought he saw the risen John the Baptist. He didn't but the disciples will see the risen King. They'll see the risen Savior. And hear me, our allegiance isn't to Herod, and our allegiance isn't to a religious leader like John the Baptist. Our allegiance is to the risen and real King Jesus. You'll be tempted over these next 18 months to give your allegiance where you shouldn't give your allegiance. Only one deserves that, and that's Jesus. That's Jesus. I caution Ravenswood Baptist Church, let us not ever let a Herod create division. Ever. Two, 
let us always only bow before King Jesus because he's our king. Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at ravenswoodbaptist.org. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media ministry and outreach ministry of Ravenswood, your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Chicago and around the world.